So I want you to think for a moment of your favorite story, uh, whether that's a book, a movie, uh, a television show, regardless of, of what format it comes to you in, what is your favorite story? And regardless of of whether you're reading or watching, uh, there's something unique about the first time that you watched it or read it. And that that uniqueness of the first time is that you don't know what's going to happen. Unless someone spoiled it for you, you don't know what's going to happen in the story, how it's going to turn out, how it's going to end. And, but after that first time, after you've read the book or watched the movie or the television show for the first time, you can't go back and watch it with the same way that you watched it the first time. You now know how the story ends. You know how it goes. There's, which this may or may not be a bad thing. Maybe you know, it could be bad if you enjoy mysteries and you enjoy watching or reading a mystery. And now that you've watched or read that story, you, you know who, who's done it. And you can't go back and be surprised by it. Maybe it's a good thing if there's a sense of you're, you're reading it, now you see it or, or watch it again, and you, you see the, the character development or little subtle details that were there that you glanced over the first time because you didn't know where the story was going or how it was going to end. But there can be problems when we become too familiar with a story, even the stories that are our favorites, that we enjoy the most. Now, we can become so familiar that we can lose the wonder of the story. The things in it that captivated us the first time become so normal and essential to the story that they don't captivate us the second time around. The other thing is that we can begin to lose our place in the story. We can know so much about what is happening in that story or all the details from beginning to end that as we're reading and jumping into a specific section, we begin to forget, well, what's actually happened up to this point? What hasn't happened yet? What does this character know already or not know yet that's going to happen? And so those two problems can affect us, I think, when we're reading the Bible. When we jump into the Gospels, we're so familiar with some of these stories that, on one hand, we can start to lose the wonder. Jesus has just spent several chapters doing miraculous things. He's been casting out demons. He's been healing those that are sick. He's raised someone from the dead. And yet when we come to that story, I think there's, there's a sense in which we just expect that those things will happen. We are so familiar with the story that for us, it would be surprising if those things didn't happen. And yet for the people that were witnessing and and seeing all these things unfold for the first time, the wonder of what was happening was that someone could do these things. There was a proclamation that they've never seen this happen before. In all the history of of the world, they've never seen someone do the things that Jesus has done. And yet again, we're, we're so familiar that sometimes we might be quick to just glance over it and not be in awe over what Jesus has been doing. But the second thing is that we can become so familiar, we get lost in the midst of the story. We know how it's going to end. We know where it's going. We know what's going to happen with these disciples. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that he identifies the 12 apostles. Uh, And yet we already know, for the most part, who these are. We know the things that they're going to do. And we begin to kind of read the end back into the story. We might think that it's not that significant that they would drop their nets and leave their businesses and their homes and their families and go follow Jesus. Well, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Why would they not? But they didn't know all of that at the time. They didn't understand fully what Jesus was calling them to do and the mission that he was going to send them on. So when we read these, these stories, we need to, to just keep that in mind of where, where are we in the middle of this story? When we read that, that Peter, James, John, Matthew, as we've seen their calling and the way that God has, has called them to follow him, there should be a sense of, of wonder at, at 
the fact that they're responding so quickly with, with faith and obedience to follow Jesus. Again, they don't understand all the things that are going to happen, but they understand that, that Jesus is doing something that is different uh, and that, that, that he is, uh, again, at this point, uh, we're, we're stepping into a point where he's going to, to call them and set them aside, and yet he has not done all of these, these miraculous things through them yet. So again, at this point, keep in mind that as he's, he's distinguishing these 12 disciples from the rest of the, the followers and disciples that he has, um, Peter has not yet walked on water. Peter has not yet declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah sent from God. The disciples have, have not yet been filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They've not preached sermons to thousands who heard the, the message in their own language. They've not written the words and letters to churches that would become the scripture that we have today. Again, we, we know that and we read back into the stories sometimes of where they're going. But I think one of the things we're going to see here this morning is that as great as, as, great as the things that, the, that God did through the apostles and disciples, they were just ordinary men as we, we look at this passage. So, so look at this, this with me as we, we look at Matthew 10, beginning in verse 1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. And then these are the names of the 12 apostles. We will we'll come back to that authority that he's giving them in just a moment. But, but for now, I just want to focus on who are these 12 disciples. Matthew identifies them and gives us this list that, again, it's, it could be so familiar that we just pass over it. We just lump all of these people together as just one group of 12 people. Um, and, you know, apparently there were, there were many disciples that were following Jesus. He was attracting a crowd. Many people were, were following him. But he specifically singles out these 12 for a special purpose and mission. Uh, we, we now know and identify them as, as 12 apostles, as, as Matthew calls them here. Uh, we, we identify them with a capital A apostleship, that, that they've been set apart for a, a specific purpose. But the, the word apostle just means a messenger or sent one. Someone that, that Jesus is sending to accomplish his specific purpose at this specific time. Um, he is going to them, give them a specific uh, mission that they are to do in this moment. And he's going to give them instructions and he's going to send them out to accomplish it. But as we read here in, in Matthew, it's, Matthew highlights over it pretty quickly as Jesus just calls the, these disciples to himself. Um, Luke gives us a little bit more detail that we, we recognize Jesus spent an entire night in prayer before he selects these 12 men. And I don't think it's just that he's laboring over the decision in the sense of who are these people going to be, which 12 should I select? I think there's a sense that he's, he's praying for them as well. He's praying for the call that he is going to give them. As Spurgeon notes, this is actually the third call that God has given to these specific 12. The first call that he gave them was the call to faith as he shares the gospel with them and calls them to repent of their sins and believe in him. The second call he gave is, is when he says to leave everything and come follow me. They're going to leave behind their nets and their businesses, their families, and they're going to follow him on his path of, of his earthly ministry. But here, amongst all the rest of the disciples that he's called to follow, he sets these 12 aside for another specific purpose, uh, to, to be the ones that eventually we know from the end of the story that are going to be the foundation of the church. Christ himself being the cornerstone, but this is who God is going to build his church upon, is the, the apostles and the prophets here. And so there's a specific call 
And there's a specific purpose and ministry that, that Jesus labors in prayer for, for them as he sets them aside. So as we look at, at this list, just a, a quick note on, on the men that are listed here. This is one of four times that we see the list of the 12 disciples. It shows up here in Matthew. We see it in Mark, Luke, and again in Acts. Um, each time that these, these lists are, are displayed, the, the names appear in, in different, slightly different orders. You'll find some slightly different names for, for how the apostles are referred to. Um, we'll get into that in just, just a moment. Um, but each of these lists of 12 has the, almost like a subdivision of three separate lists. You'll see that the, the first name in each list is, is Simon Peter. Um, and then there's a section of four disciples in various orders. And then there's a second set of three that's always listed with, uh, with the same person being first. Uh, and then a, a third set of three with the same being first. Perhaps this was just a way that uh, there were smaller groups within the 12 and, and a specific leader um, within that group. But as we go down the list, we actually find that we know less and less about them as, as it goes on. Ex- with the exception that Judas is always listed last and designated as the one that would betray Jesus. But in each of these lists, Peter is designated first. Um, which, and, and he specifically, Matthew says here is first. And that's not just because Matthew lists him first. It's not because Jesus called him first. We know that his brother Andrew was the one that actually brought Jesus or Peter to Jesus. But there is a designation here that that Peter has been set apart by Jesus for a specific role in leadership amongst the apostles. Um, And interestingly, as we we read throughout the Gospels, um, outside of Jesus, Peter is mentioned more by name than any other person no one else speaks more than Peter or is spoken to by Jesus more than Peter. No other disciple is as frequently rebuked as Peter, and no other disciple ever rebukes Jesus except Peter. Peter makes the boldest and clearest declaration of Jesus being the Christ, yet he also denied Christ mo- the most forcefully. No disciple is praised by Jesus more than Peter, and yet Peter is the only disciple who is called Satan. We see a, a significant role that Peter plays in the ministry and of both during Jesus' lifetime and also afterwards as we look at and see in, in the book of Acts. Um, yes, he was a leader among the disciples and, and after Jesus' ascension, but as much as he plays a prominent role in, in this story and in the early church history, his role is not more significant and he himself is no more significant than the other men that Jesus called to himself and set aside as apostles. Yes, we know more about Peter from Scripture than any of the other disciples, Um, and some of the disciples are only actually mentioned in these lists, and we know nothing else from Scripture about them. But that doesn't mean that they were any less important or significant. So as as we keep going through this list, we can see that we know know that James and John are brothers, made up of James, John, Peter, uh, made up a group of three disciples that were kind of especially close to Jesus. He called them to, to follow him to specific events and key events in his ministry that they got to witness firsthand that some of the others didn't. Um, we see in this first group of four, Andrew is the brother of Peter. In the next group of four, we have Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. Uh, these are, uh, this Philip is, is probably different from the Philip that we see in Acts 6. Uh, one of the deacons that had been set aside named Philip, who became an evangelist. Um, we see Bartholomew, who probably is also Nathaniel, uh, in some of the other lists and other places in Scripture. 
Um, Thomas, we know as Doubting Thomas, which is an unfortunate distinction that that's how we remember him. Um, And Matthew, who's also called Levi, and is the one writing this gospel. That makes up the second set of of four. Uh, The final group of four contains some of the the least known apostles among this list, with Judas Iscariot being the exception. But some of them only appear here in the lists. Um, And so we don't know much about, about what they've done. But here's the interesting thing. As much as the 12 apostles or disciples are are among some of the most famous people in the Bible, at least most of us would know that there are 12 if we were asked how many there are. Uh, We can think of some of the things that they've done, the places they've been, the the key events in in Jesus' ministry that they were a witness to. Um, Yet, outside of just reading through this passage just, just right now or looking at a list, most of us could probably not name the entire set of, of 12 disciples. As significant as they are, both to, to the ministry of Jesus and to the ministry of the church, uh, that Jesus would say that he's going to build the foundation of the church upon them, we don't even know their names off the top of our head. And why is that? Well, yes, we could argue that, that maybe there's just a, a biblical illiteracy, that, that we don't remember these things and spend enough time, but, but I think... Part of the reason is because ultimately who the apostles are is not as important as the message that they're proclaiming. That we don't remember and can't name them all, but we see the effect of the ministry that God sent them to do. He sent them to establish the church, to proclaim the gospel. And yet while we can't remember their specific names, that gospel is still being proclaimed here today, around halfway around the world, and it's being proclaimed all around the world as, as the gospel continues to go forward. And I think that is, is what Jesus is, is pointing to, is that there is a, a mission, there is a, this, this declaration of the, the kingdom of, of God. That is more important than the people that he has called to, to do it. But that doesn't diminish the fact that he has called people to be a part of that ministry. He's called and set aside apostles that he would use to accomplish that ministry. This was Jesus' plan A to bring the gospel to all nations, that he would set aside 12 men to go and do that work, that he would spend a very limited and short amount of time training them in in the things that he was going to have them do after he had left earth. And as we think about that, that continues till today. God is continuing to use ordinary people like you and me in his purpose and his mission of continuing to build up the church and proclaim the gospel around the world. Again, what should be most surprising about these men as we we look at this list is how ordinary they were, that there was nothing that stood out about these men that Jesus would call them to himself. He doesn't bring and call these people to himself because they're the greatest theological minds of their day or the most influential people or those with the best social status or economic means, he went and recruited 12 ordinary men. In fact, later in in Acts 4, when Peter and John are being confronted by the Pharisees, the thing that stands out to them and that, that is confusing to them is that they recognize that Peter and John were uneducated and untrained. That's what stood out to them, that they couldn't understand where does this understanding and, and knowledge come from. Well, we know it comes from Jesus, having equipped them with the ministry that he had given them. And I want to consider for a moment what that implication is for us. As we think about the way that God uses these ordinary men to accomplish something great, 
God is pleased to use ordinary people. And maybe some of you think that you're something special and have a lot to contribute to God, but I think most of us don't think that. Most of us probably struggle on the other end of the spectrum, thinking, what do I have to offer God? How is he going to use me? What, what do I have that he can use to accomplish his ministry and his purpose for his glory? Well, I would say God is, God is pleased to use what is ordinary. In other places in Scripture, he would say what is weak. And he's pleased to use what is weak to show his strength because it, it goes to his glory when he, when he, he is the one uh, that, that receives the glory through, through what he's doing. Um, there are many of you that, that have only primarily known me as an adult, uh, maybe even specifically that you've gotten to know me over the last five to ten years. Uh, for you, the thought of me standing up here preaching to you today uh, is nothing unusual. Uh, it's, it's what you've known me to do. It's maybe even something that's just expected, being one of the pastors here, that I would stand up here and preach. Um, but if you had asked those who knew me when I was growing up, if they ever expected to see me up here preaching, I think from the laughter that's, that's happening a little bit, you can understand that the most would not have thought that I would be standing up here preaching to you at any point in my life. Um, and I'll let you in on a little secret. Public speaking is still not something that I particularly enjoy. I would much rather be in the back serving and not be the one up front that everybody's looking at and listening to. But by God's grace, it's something that, that I have grown in and that God is, is pleased to use. And I, I bring that up as an illustration to say that, that all the glory of that goes to God, not because he's able to take someone with particular skills and, and use that or, or take that and... He's able to take people that, that that wouldn't be their natural inclination or their natural gifting, and he's able to display his glory through it. So as you think about yourself, maybe that's how you feel. You think that there are certain things that I could never do. That's a, that's a ministry or a work that, that I couldn't ever do, that I don't know how God would ever accomplish that through me. Yet when he does, that is what gives him the glory. Because it's not a question of, were you the one that was equipped and you brought something special to the table? It's a matter that, that all the glory goes to God because everyone acknowledges and can see that this isn't your work, it's God's work through you. So if you think you're ordinary and you think you have nothing to offer God, in one sense, that's, that's a good first step to, to be humble, to recognize that ultimately, yeah, we have nothing that we offer him, but he is able to use us and he is pleased to use us for his purpose. Maybe just, just two examples of this, but maybe you don't feel equipped to share the gospel with others. Maybe you feel that you haven't been trained sufficiently. You haven't learned all of the techniques of evangelism. You don't know enough about the Bible to answer all the questions that people are going to bring up. But I would just encourage you, God uses people who just are faithful, who love Christ and are just willing to share and open their mouth and and share with others. You don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a trained evangelist. You just need to be faithful and be willing to be used by God. Maybe you don't feel equipped to face the trials that you're going through, the tough situations. You look at the other people in the church that are struggling right now through, through cancer or sickness, and you think their faith is so strong. Look at how they're able to handle that, and I couldn't handle that. Well, I would imagine that if you asked them before they were going through this trial, they would say, I don't know how I could go through that either. But by God's grace, he, he provides the strength to walk through those trials for his glory, that others see that and they give glory to God for the work that he is doing. 
Not because others are, are superhuman in their faith, but because God is faithful. And maybe you don't even feel that you're deserving of your salvation. Maybe your thought is that I'm, I'm so ordinary, or maybe not just ordinary, but I'm so sinful, that how can God redeem me and, and show me his grace? What is there in me that is worth God saving? And I would just encourage you that, that in one sense, your thought that you don't deserve God's salvation is true. You don't deserve it. There's nothing that any of us has done to earn God's salvation and grace. But on another sense, this doubt, this thought that drives you from, from running to God in humility, that is an attack from Satan and, and couldn't be further from the truth. The idea that you can't come to God because of, of your sin. God is pleased to save sinners. And it's not in, in spite of our sin that he saves us. It's, it's because of our sin that he saves us uh, be, because we are needy. We need a savior. We need salvation that can only be found through Jesus Christ. None of us is good in and of ourselves. If we were waiting for the person that is good and that the person that God could use to do something perfect, that person would never come. We would never find them. In fact, there is, there is only one, and we've been reading about him in the Gospel of Matthew. That's Jesus. Uh, and God used him to, to die on the cross for our sins. But I, I do want to offer a warning here as we consider this list. Because familiarity with this message, familiarity with the Gospel, and all that we've been, been learning about through the Gospel of Matthew, even what we've been talking about this morning, that our, our salvation is through faith in, in Christ, Familiarity with that message isn't enough to save. There's a name on this list that stands out because of his unbelief and, in fact, betrayal of Jesus. He was familiar with Jesus and his message. He was familiar with the works that he had done. He got to witness firsthand the things that, that Jesus had done in healing the sick and casting out demons and raising people from the dead. In fact, the, the authority that Jesus is giving them is so that he can go and do some of those same things. And yet, in light of all the things that he saw and heard, the questions he got to ask of Jesus, he did not respond in faith. He responded in rebellion and betrayal to Jesus. And that should be a stark warning for us as we, we sit here and maybe come out to church every Sunday as we, we do things to serve him. We spend time reading the Bible and spending time in prayer to realize that just being around the Bible, just being gathered at church with, with other people that believe in Jesus isn't what saves us. It was not what saved Judas. In fact, it's, that's not what saves any of the apostles that are there. Peter is not saved because he spent time with the other apostles or spent time listening to God's word preached. Peter is saved and all the other apostles are saved and anyone in history that has been saved is because they placed their faith in Jesus. And that is the call that we have, not just to hear it, not just to surround ourselves with the message and with the people of God, but to actually respond with faith in what Jesus has done. And so, as we think about all of that, I just want to remind us that, or as we see our kind of our first half of our, our main point, that, that God is pleased to use ordinary people for his glory. God is pleased to use ordinary people for his glory. Part of that, that use is, we see is his salvation. God gets glory as he redeems and rescues sinners uh, but it's also because he is glorified through the work that he sends them to do. Um, and that's what we're going to see in this, this next section, is, is what is this task that he is giving to the apostles? 
So look at the next set of verses with me, beginning in verse 5. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost the sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus is getting ready to send the apostles out to, to surrounding towns. Um, and this probably serves as a training exercise for what Jesus is ultimately going to call them to do in Matthew 28, which is to go into all the world and proclaim the message of the gospel. Um, but this, this provides a way for him to give them instructions, to send them out, to, to kind of get their feet wet in, in being able to proclaim this news and then come back and report back to Jesus how things went and, and receive further instruction. Um, but for now, he's giving them some specific parameters. While later in, in Matthew 28, he's going to send them to the whole world. Right now, he's sending them just to Israel. Uh, and we see it's probably specifically to Galilee. As, as Jesus is at this point still with the disciples in Galilee, and he says uh, not to take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Well, Galilee was surrounded on the north, east, and west uh, by Gentile villages. It was bordered on the south by Samaria. So when Jesus says, don't go to the Gentiles or Samaria, he's essentially restricting them to where they are right now, which is Galilee. And so he's sending them out to, to proclaim within Galilee, within these towns, uh, the, the, the message of the gospel. He, he says in verse 7, as you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, it, it leaves off uh, the repentance that we see that uh, is part of that message in Matthew 3, 2 and four seventeen. But almost certainly, all of these places where we see this summary, this repent and, and believe that because the gospel is near is, is certainly just a summary of the teaching. These wouldn't be the only words they're proclaiming, but they're to go and proclaim that Christ has come, that God has sent his kingdom, that they're called to repent and to believe in this message. But notice that, that Jesus gives them some specific instructions, uh, which expounds upon the authority that he said he was going to give them in verse 1. Uh, so in verse 1, he had said that he gives them authority over unclean spirits to drive out to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. Here in verse 8, he says, gives them this command, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. These are the things that he is commanding them to go and do. And he's giving them authority to do that based on the authority that he already has and has displayed. Since chapter 8, we have seen Jesus cleanse a man of leprosy in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He's healed a paralyzed man of a, a paralyzed servant of a centurion in 8, 5 to 13. He healed Peter's mother-in-law in 8, 14 to 15. He drove out many demons and healed many who were sick in Capernaum in 8, 16 to 17. He drove out demons in 8, 28 to 31. He healed a paralytic in 9, 18. He healed a woman from her bleeding in 9, 20 to 22. He raised a girl from the dead in 9, 23 to 26. He healed two blind men in 9, 27 to 31. And he drove out a demon in 9.32 to 34. Jesus has displayed his authority over all of these things. He's shown that he has authority to cleanse leprosy, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to raise the dead. And he gives that same authority to the disciples to go and do the same thing. These were works that people had been seeing and declaring and saying, this hasn't been done ever. We've never seen this happen. And now Jesus is giving them an authority not so that they can go and, and compete with him or uh, that they can gain a, a group of followers. This is be, to, to authorize, in a sense, that he has sent them on this mission. He is sending them out as his apostles, his sent ones, to proclaim this message. 
And he is saying that my authority is going with you to do this work, to establish that, that you are sent by me to do this. And this is amazing to think about, that, that the disciples had this authority, that they were able to go out and do these things. Now, nothing's much is recorded right here of what happens and how do they do that. We know from Acts that eventually they will do these things. Uh, but, but it's amazing to consider some of the, the way that this must have, in one sense, bolstered their faith to be able to, to see that this is what Jesus, not only Jesus is doing, but what Jesus is doing now through me. Yet it's also interesting to note that even those things alone did not strengthen their faith to the point where they had no, no further doubt. Even after doing all of these things and coming back, they still struggle to, to wonder, how is God going to feed 5,000 people? And then he feeds 5,000 people, and then they wonder, well, how is he going to feed 4,000 people? And then, you know, a little later, they're, they're struggling to cast a demon out, the very authority that Jesus has given them, and they're struggling with it. And they bring that person to Jesus, and Jesus casts the demon out. So even after all this authority that they've been given, even after the things that I'm sure they, they probably did at that point and will do later, they still struggle with their faith, and they still struggle to do the things Jesus has commanded them. And I think there's a, a principle there for us, because I think sometimes we just think, well, if I could do some of the things that the apostles did, if I could see that power, if I could see Jesus on display and do those things, then I would believe, and I would, I would be strengthened to go out and do whatever God has called me to do. And we realize, though, that the ability to believe and that faith doesn't come just through doing things, just through the power that Jesus offers. It comes through the relationship and the faith in Christ. Like, can you imagine the, the spiritual high that the disciples must have been on to come back from this sort of trip with that sort of authority and power, to be able to see that, that they could heal people, that they could cast out demons, that they could possibly raise people from the dead and come back from that spiritual high and yet still struggle with their faith. And yet we can do the same thing. Maybe for us, it's the, the weekend retreats that we go on uh, or a Bible study that we're involved in. And, and we get this spiritual high. We come back from it excited for how can God use me? How is he at work? I'm, I'm fired up to go out and, and do whatever God's called me to do. And then we get back to school and to work and to the daily grind of life. And we just get overwhelmed with even getting up 15 minutes early to spend time in prayer and in, in the Bible. So we can't depend on the spiritual high to keep us, us motivated. All of those things are meant to point us towards Christ. It's not just to see that, that there's a healing and a casting out demons. It's to point us to the fact that Jesus is the one with that authority. It's faith in him. It's a relationship with him that keeps us energized and faithful. So let's not get so focused on extraordinary and miraculous things that we lose sight of, of it pointing us to him, because as we do that, as we, as we look to Christ, he gets the glory for that. Not the, the things that have happened, but he himself, because he is the one that is the treasure that we're pursuing, not just the things that he can do. But notice the, the second half of this verse, that one of the ways that, God is glorif- that God's glory is displayed is through the gospel. The gospel came to us freely, without cost. And we see that, that as they're going out and doing all of these things that freely you received, freely give. And that's, that's the message of the gospel, that, that we receive the gospel freely, not because of things that, that we've done, not because we're owed it. Uh, we talked about that already, that in one sense we are ordinary and we are undeserving. Uh, but as God 
saves sinners and gives us the gospel freely, it displays his glory. But let's not glance too quickly over the fact that the gospel comes to us freely, that we receive it without offering anything in exchange for it, because the gospel was not free. It cost Jesus. Jesus paid his blood for our salvation. He died on the cross, taking our place, and then was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And that is the payment that purchased our salvation. It's what we sang about this morning. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my ransom fixed, my value paid at the cross. There was a cost, but Jesus paid it for us. We receive the gospel freely, and we're to share the gospel with others freely, which ties into this next verse in in verse 9. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or staff, for the worker is worthy of his food. Now, this most likely meant that they weren't to acquire additional things as they went on the trip. For some of it, possibly even, you know, they weren't to earn money as they went, but maybe not even take money with them. Um, He gives them specific instructions about not taking a traveling bag or extra shirt, sandals, or an extra staff. But they were to travel light, and they were to rely on others as they went. And I think it, it displays probably two things. One, the urgency with which he's sending them. They're to travel light so that they can move from town to town quickly and unencumbered. Um, but two, it, it, it causes them to have to rely on God for provision. They're not going based off of the resources they have. They're going to show up in a town, and they're going to have to depend on the people that are there to provide for them. Now, ultimately, though, that provision isn't upon the people of the town. They're trusting that God is going to provide for them in that town when they get there. And we see that in the next verse, verse 11. When you enter any town or village, find out who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it is unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I tell you, it would be more tolerable on, that, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for that town. So when they enter the town, they're supposed to find someone who's going to take them in, to host them, be hospitable, provide for them. Um, ultimately, this is probably also an acknowledgement of a reception of the gospel. Not only are they providing hospitality, but they're also hearing the word and the message that they're preaching and are, are believing it and responding to it. And if they do, they greet the household with peace. If not, they withhold their greeting of peace. And I don't think there's anything special being symbolized here in the sense of a peace that's resting on the house or being called back from the house. It's, I think, just the, the, that they're, the greeting that they're either giving or not giving based on the response. Um, but if a place doesn't welcome them, they're to shake the dust off their feet and move on. It, it's like a disassociation with them. Like, that as they're moving on to the next town, they, want to be, they don't even want the dust from the town to be clinging to the bottom of their sandals as they move on. They want nothing to do with a town that is going to reject the message of Christ. Jesus says that it would be worse for that town than for Sodom and Gomorrah if they're going to reject Jesus and what he's done. Later in Matthew, we're going to see Jesus declare woes to several of the towns that he had gone to and performed miracles in. And he says that if the things that Jesus was doing had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have existed to that day. But the things that, that they are rejecting, they're rejecting the presence and the power of Christ. So Jesus is, is sending his disciples out with a mission to proclaim the gospel. Some of these towns will respond, but some of them will not. But most important for us is, is not 
which of these towns responded with faith to the gospel, which of them did not. The question is, what do we do with this message? Have we responded with faith to the gospel? The message of the gospel is, is coming, has come to us today. We're hearing it. And again, regardless of what others do with it, what do we do with it? Do we respond? So Jesus sent his disciples to do something extraordinary in the sense of the authority that he gave to them, the ability to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. That is certainly something extraordinary. And so to, to, to complete our main idea for this morning, God is pleased to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his glory. But as that applies to us, I don't want to too quickly pass over that because we might be thinking, well, I can't heal the sick. I can't cast out demons. I can't raise the dead. So does that mean God's not doing extraordinary things through me? Well, I want to briefly consider what are some of the implications of this passage to the commands that God gave to the apostles and how those might relate to us today. So first, they were to take the gospel to the house of Israel. This was a specific command given to them at a specific time. That is not, uh, we'll, or we'll see that Jesus expounds upon that ministry later in Matthew 28, as he commands them to take the gospel to all nations. And that command applies to us as well. So the apostles in this passage take the gospel to Israel, but later, and for us, we are to take the gospel to the entire world. But second, as we, we, are to, as we bring that message to the nations, um, we have no other hope to bring to them than this message of repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It, and all that is summarized in that of the teaching of the gospel, as Jesus had commanded in Matthew 28 to go and, and teach all of the things that he has commanded. That is the message, the same message that the, that the disciples were bringing to these towns is the message that we bring to the nations today. And there are many around us that have heard this message uh, and, and rejected it. We, we bring that message to, to neighbors, to family, to, to coworkers, friends. We bring that to those that have, have not heard it. But just as much as we understand and know that there are people around us that hear it and reject it, there are people around the world that have never heard this message. There are billions of people on earth that have never had the opportunity to, to respond in faith to the gospel because they have not yet heard it. In fact, there are billions of people around the earth that don't even know another Christian. There's not even anyone that if they, they had a question that they could go ask, like, what is the gospel? What is the Bible? Who is Jesus? People need the gospel, and someone needs to bring it to them. So third, uh, from this principle of, of them relying on the provision and trusting God, we see that we're to support those who are going. There were people in those towns, as they responded, they provided for the apostles. And the apostles were to rely on those that were providing them support. The worker is worthy of his wages is, is the principle that is not only here, but it's picked up on later by, by Paul uh, in 1 Timothy as he acknowledges that, that you're supposed to, from on a local level, you support those that are, are bringing the word to you and preaching the word to you. But on a, a global level, we recognize that we need to support those that are going to other places, that are leaving their family and their homes and their, their jobs and going and depending on God to provide for them and to support them as they bring the gospel to other places. But fourth, the, the apostles were being sent to do extraordinary things. And in one sense, I mean 
casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead. Certainly extraordinary. We don't see that happening all the time today. But they were also sent to proclaim the gospel. And I don't want us to miss the fact that that is extraordinary as well. To proclaim that Jesus has died for your sins and that by faith in him you can have eternal life is not an ordinary thing. To proclaim the gospel is extraordinary. That God would use us to do that is extraordinary. God doesn't need to use us to do that, but he does. And he's pleased to do it for his glory. So God is pleased to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his glory. And that applies to us as well today. We are called to share the gospel. We, as ordinary people, are called to share the gospel, an extraordinary thing. So that, is, that is, still applies, certainly, to us, that this is what we should be doing. And whether that means sharing the gospel right where you're at or going around the world, again, it is an extraordinary thing. Don't discount the, the ability that you have to share the gospel with the people that are right in your neighborhood or at your workplace. But don't also limit that to thinking that you only need to share the gospel with those that are around you here. Again, there is a, a global push that we see in, in the sense of what God is calling us in the Great Commission to go to all nations. And for our fifth and, and final point here, I just want to see that this, this passage really is a continuation of chapter 9 that we looked at last week. There's, there's a bridge there as uh, in verses 9, 37 to 38. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is how he summarizes chapters 8 and 9 of that conclusion of this is the work that he's doing. There's a harvest. There are people that are ready to believe, but people need to go and bring the gospel to them. And now this transition to to chapter 10, where he's told the disciples, pray that God would send people out to share the gospel. And then in chapter 10, Jesus reveals to the disciples that they are the answer to that prayer. That prayer that he has told them to pray, they are the very answer to that prayer. And so I would just challenge us as well as a church to consider, do we pray that God would send out workers into the harvest? Again, not not just locally, but globally as well, to bring the gospel to unreached people, to go to places where there is not another laborer that is able to, to do that work of the harvest. But not only are we willing to pray for that, but would we be willing to consider that maybe we are the answer to that prayer? That maybe God isn't raising someone else up to go, but maybe God is raising us up to go. Maybe we will be the very answer to the thing that we are asking God to do. Now, again, I don't want to diminish or take away from, from the things that, that we have to do in the, the places that we are. Um, there are certainly places and fields that God has placed you in as well. So, yes, we want to pray that God would raise up workers and laborers for other, other nations. Even as we sang about this morning, this, this pity the nation, O our God, constrain the earth to come, send thy victorious word abroad and bring the stranger home. Would we not only pray that, would we not only sing that, but would we be willing to actually see and follow that through? Uh, again, nations that, that have never heard it, people that have never heard it, but also the people that have heard it. Uh, the people that are in, in fields where you're at, where you have the opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe the fields of your workplaces, the fields of your school, the fields of your neighborhood, 
the fields of your children's sports events. These are opportunities for you to be a laborer and to harvest uh, and to, to do the work that God has called you to. So again, I, I'm not highlighting or diminishing one over the other. We need people that are going to go to the nations, to go to places that have been unreached. But you also need people that are going to share the gospel with your family and your friends and your coworkers and your classmates. But would you just be willing to be used? Would you pray that God would send workers out? And would you be willing to be that worker? In one sense, again, God has called each of us to do that. That's the message here in in chapter 9. It's what he's called us in Matthew 28 to do. This isn't a prayer just for other people to do. It's something that he has called each of us to participate in. As God is pleased to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his glory. Now, again, as, as we think of the story of the, of the apostles, again, we're, we're familiar with now we see how it starts, but we, we know in one sense how it ends, as we see throughout the Gospels in the book of Acts. Um, in another sense, though, we probably aren't completely familiar with exactly how it ends. Uh, there's only one apostle in, in Acts who uh, we see what, what happens of him, um, that's John, or sorry, James, the brother of John, is the only apostle whose fate is revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, we find out that Herod had put James to death with the sword. Uh, but for the rest of, of the apostles, uh, Scripture doesn't record what happens to them ultimately. The, the book of Acts gives us a great a deal of information about their ministry. Uh, but through um, church history and, and, and records, we're able to, to know that other than John, the other 10 disciples ultimately would meet the same fate as James. So 10 out of, or 10 out of 11 of them, Judas being excluded, but would face martyrdom for their faith in Christ. They would go from here, and then not only from this training that they receive in chapter 10, but to fulfill the command that they've been given in Matthew 28, and they would bring the, the gospel to India and to Africa and to Asia and as far as the British Isles, and yet 10 out of 11 of them would be martyred for their faith. Um, James, or, or sorry, uh, Peter, it said, is, was crucified um, upside down because he didn't feel worthy to, to be crucified in the same way that, that Christ had been. Uh, he was crucified after, according to, to history, watching his, his wife be crucified first. Um, John is, is the exception uh, to that rule, or to, to this, in that he did not face martyrdom, but he faced exile and we know from Revelation that he spent the remaining years of his life on the island of Patmos and in his old age, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, we know that Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified. Uh, and while he was hanging on the cross, continued to preach the gospel to people that were passing by. Philip was stoned to death. Bartholomew was possibly drowned or crucified. Matthew was probably burned at the stake. Thomas was possibly speared to death. James, the son of Alphaeus, was, was either stoned, beaten, or crucified. Judas likely clubbed to death. Um, each of them would die because of, of what Christ had called them to. This is not what they thought was going to happen when Jesus stands here at this moment and says, I'm sending you as my apostles to go and proclaim the gospel. He had asked them when they argued on the road of like, which one can sit on your right or left? Can you drink the cup um, that, that I will drink? Their answer was Yes. And they didn't know, though, what that answer would be. I think so for the same, 
Same as us, as we see that God is pleased to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We don't know what the end of our story is. We don't know what God is calling us to do. We might know we come from humble beginnings. We don't have much to offer. We might seem ordinary, but God can do extraordinary things. Maybe it's not calling us to give our lives as the apostles did, but are are we willing to be faithful, regardless of whatever the outcome is, to trust God with the results and to be faithful to do the ministry and the work that he has called us to? Don't discount what God has called you to do in your life because it seems ordinary. To share the gospel is extraordinary. Um, He may not call you to these same things that he called the apostles to, but he has called you to some purpose. He's called you to some work. We know that that is, at a minimum, sharing the gospel with others in whatever context or place that might be. God is pleased to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the work that he has done on our behalf to take the penalty for our sin. Lord, we thank you that that is freely given to us. And Lord, that in one sense, while while we are all ordinary, we are all sinners in need of salvation, Lord, that we are all loved by you. And that is, uh, that gives us a worth and a worthiness that is beyond um, even just what, what we would imagine in the sense of, of our sin. Lord, it, it acknowledges that, that we are unworthy and yet we are worthy. Lord, that our, our cost has been paid in, in Christ's blood. Lord, there is no ordinary calling that you've given to, to share the gospel with others. Lord, we pray that you would equip us for that purpose. Lord, that you would help us by faith to carry out the things you've called us to do, to go to the specific places you're sending us to witness and minister the gospel to specific people that we will have opportunities that no one else does, or that we would be faithful in those moments to, to represent you and to be the ones that are sent by you to proclaim and share the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you give us the blessing and the privilege to be used by you in this way. Lord, may you be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen.